Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. In today's episode, we bring you part two of our live event, The War in Ukraine, How Does It End? This event was hosted by the BBC's Clive Myrie, who was joined by four leading historians, Orlando Figes, Max Hastings, Anne Applebaum, and Alessia Kramachuk. Part one of this event was released on our last episode and is available now to all our listeners. Do take a listen to that first, if you can. Part three of this conversation is available exclusively to subscribers. This event took place in March 2023 and is part of Intelligence Squad's live debate partnership with the South Bank Centre. And in Poland, to, to get to the end state that, 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 that you and I suspect everyone here desires yeah. does require the Western Alliance to stay firm. We have a presidential election in America uh, next year. Um, as Max has been saying, there seems to be a little bit of reticence on the part of some of those in Europe to start with that very long lead time in producing the kind of ammunition and weaponry that is needed to, 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 to help the Ukrainians in this war. Are you confident that that Western alliance can remain intact and keep the commitment that has been made to Ukraine uh, going forward? So I can't tell you what will happen in two years. Um, I can tell you that the current U.S. administration is, as Max just said, entirely committed to arming the Ukrainians, to providing them with ammunition, and is has been slowly ratcheting up the kinds of weapons they have given and the kinds of training they do. Um, I would slightly take issue with the idea that Europe does nothing. Uh, three days ago, the EU created a, a kind of the Euro, a European Defense Agency created a common ammunition procurement program. The EU, which has never given anybody any weapons for anything ever before, um, will be procuring ammunition for Ukraine over the next year. There's now a there's an attempt to bump up ammunition production 
um, across the continent. Um, the Germans, after admittedly an enormous amount of arm twisting, um, have now agreed to give tanks, and they're organizing tanks, actually, they're leopard tanks from around Europe that will also be going to Ukraine. As, as I understand it, they're already um, Ukrainian soldiers training on them. You know, there, there is a tendency always to say, well, what will happen next and when will people get sick of the war and when will everybody get tired of it? And I understand that tendency. But if you look at what's happening now, actually, the numbers are going up. The, the governments who are in power in Europe right now remain dedicated to the idea that Ukraine should win. And for the immediate foreseeable future, I don't see that being challenged. Um, even, you know, we had an interesting incident in the U.S. in the last few days one of our presidential candidates, probable Republican presidential candidates, Ron DeSantis, made a statement that was very negative about Ukraine. He described, he described the war as a kind of territorial dispute that was maybe none of our business. And, you know, it's been almost amusing in the last two or three days to watch him kind of pull it back and say, well, maybe I didn't mean it quite like that and so on, because he received so much pressure from public opinion and even from his colleagues in his own party um, to change that phraseology and to and to sound and to sound a little bit different. So, so for right now, the coalition is real. It's actually upping its game rather than lowering it. Um, and right now, there isn't actually a major European government which is causing a problem or or boycotting aid to Ukraine, including the Italian government, which there was a lot of worry about, the French government, which people were worried about. On the contrary. So maybe this is a concern for next year, and maybe a lot will depend on what the Ukrainians are able to achieve in the next few months, how, how convincing their spring and summer offensive will be. But actually, for right now, it's, uh, we're doing a lot better than I or really, I think almost anybody yep. else would have predicted a year ago. I, I have to, one question I have to put out, and that is you're absolutely right, and I totally agree that European solidarity, NATO solidarity, has held together much better than many people feared. But you said everybody's agreed that Ukraine must be at must win. But on the other hand, the definitions of win, and this is the point, the definitions of win are very different from nation to nation. And this question of those definitions, what we're talking about tonight, we're talking about how does this end? And I think this question of the, of the certainly the softness in large parts of Europe about what sort of win um, I would say that there's a commitment in Europe that Ukraine shouldn't lose. Um, I'm not persuaded there's a, a, a commitment in Europe to the notion that Ukraine must achieve an absolute victory. I think that's probably right, although yeah. I think all of those assumptions are going to be shaped by what actually happens, yeah, by agreed. what Ukraine sure, does. Sure. Okay, Orlando, we saw President Xi in Moscow this week. I wonder how that dynamic, the relationship between China and Russia, could affect a possible outcome. Who knows? I mean, I'd like firstly just to say that, that to warn about the, the dangers of provoking an, a tactical nuclear strike is not the same as appeasement. I'm sorry, but that's not appeasement. It's simply pointing out that there are ways to achieve the objective that we share. But I think that the Chinese... Um, impact will be probably putting aside the geopolitics of it because mm. clearly Russia is turning east, Kazakhstan, T Tajikistan are coming under the Chinese Aegeus and Russia will be too. But I think in terms of how this war plays out, it's probably going to just add 
ammunition and all the other components needed for high caliber missiles and all the rest of it being supplied by China. So that effectively Russia can probably continue fighting this war at the level it's fighting it now for some time. Now, I agree with that. I would love to see um, uh, more armaments given so that Ukrainians can make a significant breakthrough this, this summer. But, you know, failing that, it seems to me that just the constant supply of arms to Ukraine and then other, you know, things to help. Like, I mean, I think, for example, they should be brought within the EU much quicker because mm. that, really, that really makes it clear that, mm. that Ukraine is going to be in the European sphere and we're going to defend Ukraine as part of the European sphere. But the, the, only, the, the only way of getting a Ukrainian victory, as I say, is only when the Putin regime falls because no peace is worth the paper it's written on until then. So... For that, you know, we have to think in terms of a long time span. You know, I mean, Russia in the First World War, they lost two million soldiers before the February Revolution. Two million. So that's ten times as many as they've already lost. The Afghan war, I mean, yeah, after ten years in Afghanistan, there was enough protest from the mothers about the dead bodies coming back for a change in policy. But that was, you know, at a time when the whole of Russia was protesting. There was glasnost. You could protest. No one's protesting now. It's too dangerous. You know, so it's, we're in this for a long haul. And when I say, you know, there's a t danger of, of, of provoking Putin into the use of tactical nuclear weapons, that's not appeasing. That's simply saying that is not a good way to end this war because the number of deaths involved will be absolutely catastrophic. Mm. Uh, Elisa, I mean, are you, are you concerned about the possibility of China helping the Russians militarily more than they already are? I mean, there are, you know, um, uh, components that are used in drones and so on and so forth that are being provided by the Chinese. But no physical weaponry as such. And the only break on that supply at the moment is the threat of sanctions, Western sanctions on Chinese companies. Do you see that holding? I'm concerned about two things in relation to China. One is that um, China seems to be looking for a, a role for itself as a, a peace broker uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, there are reports of the Chinese at least supply and dual use uh, goods to mm. Russia, such as parts for drones to support it and it's uh, in the war that is waging against Ukraine. And the other thing I'm concerned about is also China seeking an opportunity uh, for control in the region by investing in the future restoration, post-war restoration of Ukraine as well. And here again, I would like to bring it back to us and remember that we, the democratic world, has to offer Ukraine the sort of viable option for restoration, post-war restoration, so it doesn't have to consider options such as that, that might come from China, which comes obviously with a lot of baggage and, and potential interference and influence. Mm. So again, I, I constantly try to empower us all to not sit
sit back and be spectators of this war that happens far away among people of, of, of whom we know little, but actually remember that we have a say here as well. There's a lot we can do. There's a lot we can do by pressuring our leadership here and ensuring that while we're debating all of those things, actually people in Ukraine are dying in enormous numbers. The, the, the suffering is huge, both civilian and military. And unlike in Russia, we don't use, we don't fight with cannon fodder. We don't have an endless supplies of, of servicemen and women, nor do we want to fight that way. We value human life. And that when we talk about concessions, let's remember that each time we say territory, we actually mean the people. And those people in occupied territories, in temporarily occupied territories, are going through horrendous suffering. We have seen torture chambers. We have seen the sort of experiences that people have gone through. We now know that over 16,000 children have been abducted and forcefully moved to Russia. Are we really prepared to take responsibility for the fates of those people in the occupied territories if they remain occupied? Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I think we need to talk a bit more about practicalities, again, coming back mm. to this thing. Now, one issue, we've talked about weapons so far. We haven't talked about sanctions. And one of the big disappointments in the last year has been that the Russian economy has held up much better than everybody thought in the face of sanctions. And we, we know, I think it's the figure, 85% of the world's populations, their governments are not supporting sanctions. And the 141 countries that, um, yes, they, they voted to condemn Russia at the UN the other day, but many of them are also not taking part in the sanctions. And I think there's a good argument that, of course, the battlefield is a very important component of this. And I entirely agree with Anne that um, outcomes are going to be overwhelmingly influenced by what happens on the battlefield, but they're also going to be influenced by how much pain the Russians can be made to feel. And I think one of the frustrations at the moment is so much of the world doesn't want to play. Mm. And a friend of mine who was visiting a relatively respectable African state the other day, and he asked its president why um, he was not uh, supporting the West on sanctions uh, in Ukraine. And he said, I can't see the difference between what the Russians did in Ukraine and what the Americans did in Iraq. And an awful lot of the world are talking and thinking like that. If we're going to have a fair chance 
of bringing the Kremlin to a negotiating table for what any of us would consider a reasonable negotiation. Sanctions have got to be worked much better than they're working at the moment, and we shouldn't kid ourselves about that. But it has to be said, Anne, that the Russians are able to sell their oil to the Chinese, to the South Africans, to other countries in, 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 in the African continent, to the Indians, and as a result, that pain that the West perhaps thought might be affecting the mindset of ordinary Russians now is simply not there to the degree that they hoped. Yes, I mean, of course, oil is fungible and that was sanctions on oil were never going to have the kind of impact that that would be so dramatic. I mean, much more dramatic, of course, has been the the gas cutoffs, which which do affect Russia because it's not so easy to re you know, reorient a gas pipeline overnight um, or fix one that happens to have been blown up either. Um, so that has had some impact. Um, I think the real disappointment is actually a much narrower one, and it's very important that we think about it. Um, we always knew that there would be lots of countries trading with Russia and buying their oil and so on. There was an attempt to deprive Russia of particular electronic components and there were um, limits on what could be exported to Russia um, that was meant to prevent Russia from being able to rebuild their weapons. So it was really very specifically about weapons and not about the Russian economy. And as far as I know, to some degree that has worked. You know, we have some evidence that they've had more trouble making you know, new artillery or building new, new, new tanks or, or, or building new equipment than, than they would have done before. But it also does seem as if they're able to get that these components are exported and then re-exported and then re, you know, sent to Turkey and then put on, you know, on a truck going through Georgia. Um, and they've been able to import things in, in roundabout ways. Um, and I don't think we have really thought through our sanctions regime in that sense. We need to be much more intelligent about secondary sanctions, about understanding how it is that these kinds of bits of equipment move around the world, be much more careful about you know, what, what, what goes where uh, and, and so on. I mean, we, I just don't think we were prepared for that kind of thinking or for the scale of what we're doing. Um, I would also say just as a, you know, just by the way, much of what we've done regarding Russian oligarchs has felt to me very knee-jerk. You know, okay, we're going to take away their yachts, you know, or we're going we're to make sure their kids can't study in schools or whatever. I mean, some of that seems to me a little bit pointless. I mean, we, as if we're trying to, you know, make a, make a political statement rather than make a real impact. Mm. And the real impact would be, as I said, on these export sanctions, on these export controls, rather, and understanding better how it is the Russians are able to get around that and, and blocking it. I, as I know, people in Washington are working on this now, and I hope there'll be improvement in that over the next few weeks and months. All right, okay. So let's get creative then. Orlando, could you envisage a situation where Ukraine allows the legal annexation of Crimea to the Russians in return for membership of the European Union and NATO? Uh, Clive, I think all of these hypothetical discussions are pointless because... Um, but they're interesting, man. That's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think there should be trading of territory for peace or concession. Why should the Russians have no veto on whether Ukraine can belong to NATO or the EU? Nothing to do with Russia. But so, as, but, but so, as has been so, stated, we have 
hundreds of people dying in the middle of this war. Is it a possibility that we should be? The people who might, you know, be negotiating or talking to people in back channels or whatever, is it something they should be thinking about? To I end the bloodshed? I'm not, because of, I'm not aware of any back channels since the early days of the war. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's a good idea to have back. I mean, my position remains, as I say, said it at the very beginning. I think it's pointless talking about hypothetical deals, compromises over territory and uh, security arrangements uh, until the Putin regime is is driven to the point of exhaustion where it collapses. Orlando, I don't totally agree with you. I've been reading a lot of stuff from Washington in the last few weeks um, where a lot of people in Washington are starting to say, we've got to think about some aspects, in particular this question of security guarantees, yeah. that, um, that those sort of issues have got to be, um, and, and the Americans have got to be there that in the end, no other voice is going to be decisive in providing guarantees. So that aspect of it, you can't have the talk about where the war ends geographically, because as Anne has said, and we all would agree, at the moment, both sides believe victory is possible, and alas, the killing and the dying is going to go on. But there are some aspects of this that certainly in Washington um, should be talked about. And, and it's, but, it's... But Max, I think that in Moscow, they've gone beyond the idea of, of this war being about NATO or security guarantees. It's a land grab. Mm. They want to restore the Russian Empire on the basis of what it was under the Soviet Union. Yes, but the, the foremost challenge of the post-war era has been containing conflict. And what, um, in, in everybody's mind, on the one hand, what the West has been doing pretty successfully so far is on the one hand to give um, a maximum support for Ukraine uh, diplomatically and in some degree militarily with the reservations I mentioned, but also to try desperately to contain the conflict. So, I mean, I agree with you. I think it is still possible that Putin in certain circumstances could resort to tactical nuclear weapons. So that threat remains. So containing the conflict still seems a vital objective, doesn't it? Uh, sure. Well, if you contained it that way, he'd simply freeze the conflict because he, he, can, right. he can call it a day where it is and just defend what he's got. Is it time, Alicia, that those people who might be discussing this in Washington do start thinking more creatively about how to end the bloodshed? Because your fellow countrymen and women are dying as we speak. It's time and it's high time and it's long overdue for us all around the world to understand that all conversations about Ukraine have to be driven by the Ukrainians themselves. Mm -hmm. All security guarantees, everything that goes on the negotiation table has to be decided by Kyiv and not over Ukrainians' heads. For far too long, we've dismissed that country as some sort of buffer zone between Russia and our comfort. We cannot continue doing that anymore. And Kyiv has made it clear, and Ukrainians on the battlefield, off the battlefield, in the occupied territories where they've been protesting daily for months on end of occupation, you know, having their lives threatened every minute of that protest, that they will not accept life in occupation. We have to listen to the voices of Ukrainians. We can't have these conversations without them 
being driven by the Ukrainians themselves anymore. Mm, that has to be right. And to come back to your question, Clive, that you mm. asked me, I mean, yeah. any peace deal would have to go through the Ukrainian parliament or a yeah. referendum. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing to suggest that any sort of negotiation peace for, mm. for land is going to muster much support at all. The mm. Ukrainians want to fight. So we, all we can do is keep supporting them for mm. as long as it takes. But we have to recognize the American, well, Richard Huss, the president of the Council of Foreign Relations, wrote a very vivid piece about six months ago saying we've got to the point where it's got to be recognized that just going on saying the only person who can decide how this war ends is President Zelensky, this is not acceptable when the United States is so profoundly committed and the United mm. States can be the only possible guarantor of any sort of ultimate settlement. So the United States, one thing we can say confidently is this cannot just be between Zelensky and Putin. The United States has got to be there. And I don't believe any guarantees offered by the Germans or the French or for that matter the British are, are worth it. We have to be quite clear in our minds about the centrality of the Americans in all this. And by God is the one thing, some people who over the last 30, 40 years have had their reservations about aspects of American policy, by God we need them to a terrifying degree. And if America walks away from Europe, whatever troubles we have become incomparably worse. And I often think, say we should say thank you to the Americans much more loudly and much more clearly. All right, well, on that point, um, we have come to the end of the discussion here on the stage. I want to take some questions now from uh, any of you in the audience. Gentlemen, just there. Who is there in Russia who we would like to see replace Putin? <laughs> Orlando. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. The third and final part of this conversation is exclusively available to our subscribers, who can access all episodes ad-free now. This event was produced by executive producer Hannah Kay and senior producer Connor Boyle. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next, who we should have on, and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or on Twitter, at Intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run, or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.